Amen. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Habakkuk. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Be right there in chapter one, right where we uh, left off last week there in verse five. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one around you on the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have that one. Take that one with you. You can write in it, mark it up, all that stuff. Um, you know, we just sang a prayer. I don't, I don't know if you realize that. That's what, that's what just happened. We just all, as a group, sang a prayer. That's what that song is. It's a prayer for God uh, to come and to speak to us, to you and I, uh, through His Word. And one of the lines in there says, Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. That's what you and I just prayed together. We just prayed that God would come and fulfill in us all His purposes for His glory. That's what we just sang that. That's a heavy prayer. I mean, I know it's set to music and it's pretty. I know it's got a nice rhythm and cadence to it, but that's like a big, heavy, weighty prayer we just laid out there for God, that He would come and and change us. Not that we would, uh, not that He would change to accommodate us, but that we would change. That we, that God would act in such a way that it would mean that we are the ones who are having to change. That's a powerful, powerful prayer. And so if you would, let's just jump in this morning. Let's stand together and tune our hearts uh, to hear the voice of the Lord, to hear His transforming word that we just prayed for, to hear Him come and speak to us this morning. This is Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder. And be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, God, we thank you that we can be here today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to sit under your word, to, to, to be as one body here underneath the authority of our creator. God, that we come here freely, that we live in a place, as has already been prayed, as has already been confessed, that we live in a place and we have people who protect the right that we have to gather here together other than a car being stuck in the middle of the road on the way to get in here this morning, we didn't have any hindrance except for our own hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us that is supernatural and one that we can't accomplish for ourselves. I pray that you would make those distractions of our hearts fade away, that you would give us the ability even now, give us the gift of your grace that would allow us to hear from you, that we would hear your voice. 
And so don't let me be in the way of that this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you know this, um, and I've said it a couple of times, but, uh, but I, I did spend about 10 years in the commercial uh, contracting business. And when I was in the construction industry, the summer months for us were the absolute busiest uh, time of the year uh, because we did a lot of work in school buildings and on college campuses. And, and so the moment that the teachers, y'all don't know this, but the moment the teachers hand in their keys and get out of the way, construction workers flood every school that you've ever been in and we destroy the thing from the top down. We take the ceilings out, we take all the lights out, we make a huge mess. And then our job is to make sure it doesn't look that like that by the time the teachers come back two months later. So one of the things that we would do during the summer is we would normally, we'd hire uh, some college students, usually college boys who are looking to make a little extra uh, money on the, uh, during the summer, and, and we would bring them in as helpers, and, and so it was their job literally to just be available. Um, they don't have any skill. They're not trained in this. They don't know, they don't even know the language to speak, you know, so you're just kind of pointing at stuff constantly going, just pick that up and bring it here. If you, and, and if they can do that, they're allowed to stay working. And if not, they don't, they don't get to work for very long. But anyway, uh, a lot of the times you'd find yourself, or at least I would find myself during the summer on a rooftop. And if you, and in South Carolina, this was a hundred some odd degrees and you need one tool. The one tool that you need to accomplish this job is not with you. Of course, it's down in the truck, you know, a few hundred yards away and a couple of weird ladders you got to climb. And so you'd send this college student to go and get that one tool for you. And, and what would normally happen almost every single time is they would take an extraordinarily long time accomplishing this task. And then, and then they would come back and, and they'd have the wrong tool in their hand. And to be fair, uh, they would come back with something. All right, they didn't come back empty-handed. They would, in desperation, they would grab something and bring it back. It just usually wasn't going to be the right tool for the job. As we get into this section, uh, we need to remember that Habakkuk, okay, the prophet has diagnosed the problem. All right, he has looked at it from all the angles. He's pointed out what is wrong with the people of God. He knows what's broken. He sees the, remember this is last week, he sees the iniquity and the injustice. He sees the wrong uh, of what's going on around him. He sees, uh, he sees destruction and violence. He sees that strife and contention are what's growing up out of all of that. And all of this, at this point, is just within the people of Judah. Okay, I don't, I don't know if we made that point strong enough last week that as Habakkuk is looking at everything that's wrong, he's not looking out at the world, he's looking here. He's standing at the pulpit going, God, this is what's wrong with our people. This is what's wrong with your people. It's within the people of God. He's not looking out at the world. He's looking at his people. He's looking at his family. He's not even looking over the fence into the neighbor's backyard to see how high his weeds are. He's looking in his own yard right now. And so it's within the people of God that the law itself is being paralyzed and the righteous are grossly outnumbered and surrounded by the wicked. And sort of his summary thought, the one that he used there as he's crying out to God, is that justice is perverted. It's that what should be has been distorted. It's been twisted. It's been ruined. That's his cry. And listen, God doesn't disagree with him. 
He doesn't look down on Habakkuk and point out all the ways that he's wrong. He doesn't tell him, hey man, like, like, like you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, what we, what we really are seeing here is that by all accounts, God, God agrees with Habakkuk. He agrees with the prophet. He concurs with him. It's like the captain of the ship, right? He's, going, he's got the executive officer saying, here's what's wrong. And he's the captain going, yeah, I agree. You are absolutely right. And so what we need to see right out of the gate is that God is not blind to what is happening on the earth. It's that nothing on earth is hidden from the face of God. And so our summary for you, if you're a three-point person and you're looking for him, here are the three points. It's that God sees, God hears, and God responds. And most of us would probably agree with that in sort of a philosophical or detached sense. Okay, we'll agree in a sort of hypothetical way that God would be able to see whatever it is that he desires to see. But when it comes to believing, when it comes to acting in our lives as though he sees and hears everything, more often than not, we tend to act as though as though that's more of a possibility than it is a reality. And so the way it usually works in the church today, so let's just start with us. In the church, it works this way, sort of formally, okay, out loud, we might declare that God is all-knowing. So that's a question. We will probably end up one Sunday in a children's sermon asking the kids, what does God know? God knows everything, and we'll go, yay, and then somebody will say something silly, and we'll laugh, but we, we'll agree with it in general, and so we go, yes, God knows everything. We will declare that he is all-seeing, that God is all-hearing, but functionally, okay, functionally, in real life, we tend to act toward God. We treat God as though he's mostly knowing and partly seeing, and we doubt that he can really hear us. And even if he, even if he can, he, he, he doesn't seem to really want to. This is the way the church tends to act toward God today. We treat him as though he might be able to see what's happening if he were to open his eyes. If he were to turn his face toward us, he might be able to see us. And so we're a lot like Habakkuk in the opening here as he's pointing out to God everything that's wrong. You know, he's, he's sort of the, the church referee at this point, just pointing out everything that's wrong, blowing the whistle, going, these guys are doing it wrong, these guys are doing it wrong, everybody's doing it wrong. We tend to act toward God as if he needs us to inform him of what's happening in the world, as if he needs us to bring him up to speed. And what and what that does in the church and the way that we functionally approach worship and holiness is that we begin to see God more as senior management than we see him as sovereign king. The way that we treat him is often as though he's, he's maybe the, the chairman of a board of directors, okay, but, but he spends most of his time really detached from the actual work that his people are doing on the ground while he travels the globe enjoying the benefits of our hard work, okay? So he will check in from time to time. He does have an interest in it, but it's not really his primary job. He'll make sure production hasn't slowed down, but he's, he's not really involved in what's happening day today. It's a sad truth that a lot of the time we in the church functionally look, as, look at God not as a loving father, but more like the dad who has the fighting kids and he just walks out of the room saying, I don't have time to deal with this mess. I have bigger fish to fry. Y'all figure it out on your own. And so what we do, 
What the church does is we get busy getting about the work of religion. We go about the work of trying to fix it ourselves. That's what religion is. It's working our way back to God, of trying to prove ourselves, just sort of running around, making new suits of fig leaves to try and hide our brokenness from the Lord. We treat him as though he might be able to see and he might be able to hear, but he probably doesn't want to. And see, the world takes it a step further. And that's who we see in this passage, okay? The Chaldeans, as we see there in verses 5 through 11, they, they see it a little differently. Their view of God is a little different. Where the church tends to act as though God might be able to see and hear, the world tends to treat God as though he isn't there at all. Look there in verse 6 with me, because, because what we see there is that, is that it's God who says this, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Remember now, this is how God, okay? This is how God is describing the Chaldeans. This isn't how Habakkuk's looking out and describing them. This is God's word. He's saying they are the bitter and and hasty nation. This is God speaking. This is God making it clear to Habakkuk that yes, I see what is happening. He describes those Chaldeans as bitter and hasty. That means they're a hostile people. They're aggressive and impulsive. They don't seek counsel. They don't practice discernment. They don't ask questions to consider what is best for those around them. They just get to it because they are a law unto themselves. If there is a God, says the world, he's deaf. If there is a God, says the world, he's blind. And if there is a God, he has no power to respond anyway, and so they do whatever they want. Because their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Because in their minds, they're the source. They're the ultimate authority. It's their justice. They determine what's right and wrong. They determine what's true and false. It's that even morality is subject now to their determining power. It's the problem we run into today as we see battles being waged every single day of what it means for something just to be true. We see this in the world as as people fight day after day to determine what is is considered real and true and viable. We find ourselves today in a sort of democratic determinism where whatever the majority or even just the loudest in the group decide is true, is what we're told is true, whether it's true or not. The Chaldean perspective, the world's perspective, is not just that God is impotent, but that he's non-existent. And so the Chaldeans, those in power, they they don't recognize any authority above their own. Their lives echo the words of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, where he said, as, as he looked out, as he stood on his terrace, and he looks out over Babylon, and this is what he says, he said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built? by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He only saw his own strength. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw his own strength. He saw his own power. He saw his own glory, his own ingenuity. What he didn't realize is that God saw it too. You see, just as God sees his people, he sees the world. Just as God hears the cries of Habakkuk, he hears the boast of the dreaded and fearsome Chaldeans. 
He hears as they scoff at kings. He hears as they laugh at rulers. The Lord hears and he sees as they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. You see, God's not blind to what's happening. He's not deaf to what's happening. He hasn't shut it down for the summer. He hadn't mailed it in. He's not on vacation. We were talking about in the, in the class with the little kids. There are some things God cannot do. Do you know that? There are things God cannot do. Like God cannot lie. Have you ever thought of that? I see if I point at one of you and say, oh, he's, he's not alive, you'd go, well, that's not true. But if God points at one of us and says, he's not alive, bad news. You're not alive anymore. If I told you that the floor is made of water, you go, this guy's crazy. If God says the floor is made of water, guess what? Hope you can swim. Like, this is how it works with God. He cannot lie. God can't not be God. He can't just stop. He can't put it aside and go, I'll take a break. I know everybody saw uh, the, the Bruce Almighty movies, and, and if you suffered through Evan Almighty, God bless your heart. But if you, if you saw those and God's going, I'm taking a vacation, you're in charge, and everything went haywire, that's not even possibility. It's a false premise. I'm just kidding. That movie was, it was pretty funny. God can't, he can't stop being God. He sees and he hears everything that's happening. And so he hears the cries and he hears the boasts. He knows what they are. So he sees and he hears and he responds. Look at what he does there. He doesn't respond how Habakkuk was hoping. Look at it again there in verse five with me. God says this, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. First off, I love that Habakkuk's complaint has essentially been, uh, God, do you not see? Do you not see what's happening? This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And God's first response is to go, look. Like, open your eyes, brother. Like, you think it's bad? You don't even know. Okay, it's not half. It's twice as bad as you think it is. You don't know the half of it. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God's saying, yes, I see this injustice. Yes, I see violence. I see the sin that has engulfed my people. I see that they no longer seek first my kingdom. I see that they have perverted my law and and aren't following after me. I see that. I see it all. I can't not see it. God has to see everything that's happening. And look at what he says. He says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So listen, did you notice that? God doesn't say, I'm about to do a work in your days that you would not believe. God says, I am doing a work in your days. You see, Habakkuk in his fear Habakkuk in his limited vision of the world has come to God and effectively he's asked him to engage. He's going, don't you see what's happening? Can you get in the game? It's like the coach yelling at his players who just don't seem to be quite into it. They're going, hey man, there's a game. Happen to be cool if you showed up for it. Habakkuk's looking at God going, you're the star player and you're sitting on the bench. Would you please get in here and make something happen? Because we're losing. And you see, that's the mentality that we fall into so often. It's that God isn't near. It's that God does not care. That God is not involved. That he cannot hear. And so we end up, we end up moving through life in a sort of functional agnosticism that seems to, to plague the church today. But what did God say to Habakkuk? 
Remember, he said, I am doing a work in your days. I am doing it. When I was a kid uh, growing up, I, loved, I had a very limited uh, exposure to movies and television. I'm not saying that in pride. Um, it's, just, it's just how it was. We had like the four basic channels where we lived, and it was an antenna that you turned a thing, and it went, you know, and it was like, it was a big dramatic thing to try and get a different channel at our house. Um, but I loved the movie The Karate Kid. The few 80s kids nodding. Thank you. Um, I love the idea of the underdog, okay, the misfit, the kid who, who's just sort of all out of his element, doesn't fit in and, and doesn't really have a place. And I love this picture of like the older, wiser guy coming along beside him and kind of helping him, you know, as he makes his way through life. By the way, uh, if, you're, if you would count yourself as one of the older men, that's exactly what the younger men in the church so desperately need today. So just be a Mr. Miyagi to somebody and you'll be doing discipleship, by the way. If you remember that story, though, Mr. Miyagi, the short little guy, agrees to teach Daniel karate, uh, and to teach him how to protect himself, and so he brings him to his house. Do you remember this? He brings him to his house, and, he, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to teach you karate, and Daniel's excited, man. He's got his little bandana on, ready to go into karate training, and he's like, hey, uh, uh, wax, uh, uh, sand the floor. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, all the floor. And it's all this deck, and he's got to sand it. He spends the whole day out there sanding. He's, but it's a very specific way. You've got to sand it this way and then this way, right? Sand it this way. And then he get, comes back the next day, and he's super fired up. He's like, man, I sand this guy's floor. Now he's going to help me out. And he's like, uh, paint the fence. And so he paints the fence, and it's up and down, up and down. And then he comes back the next day, and this day he's a little bit sore. And Mr. Miyagi's like, hey, how about do this? Um, can you paint the house? I mean, it went well with the fence. Let's paint the house now. But this one goes side to side, and I'm drawing this way out too long. But the last day comes, and there's all these cars there that Mr. Miyagi has, unexplicably, by the way, um, that he just has all of these cars, right? And, and he's like, oh, wax on, wax off, right? So everyone remembers that, wax on, wax off. And then Daniel gets mad. He get, and he says, this is, it's hard to believe it's a PG movie because he goes off. I went back and watched it this week to prove that I'm not out of my mind because I was going to show it to my kid, and now I'm having second thoughts. But he says all these, all these words. Daniel says to Mr. Miyagi, he's super mad. He's like, I'm just your slave, man. Just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, and he says a bunch of stuff. Sorry, I just did a little uh, in front of y'all. Um, well, I can't even delete that out of the podcast. That's on there for all eternity. Right? He shouts at him, and Mr. Miyagi says, show me, sand the floor. He said, no, no, show me sand the floor. And he says, show me paint the fence. Show me paint the house. Show me wax on, wax off. And it's at that moment that Daniel realizes the entire time he's been there doing all these tasks, he begins to understand that Mr. Miyagi had been teaching him the whole time. He'd been, he had been at work the whole time. The one who serves as sort of the God figure in the story had been teaching him, had been doing the work the entire time. Daniel just didn't realize it. That's what God says here. He says, I am doing a work in your days. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. God responds. He hears the guy shouting at him. Habakkuk is complaining. He's crying out, and God doesn't say, shut up, man. He says, yes, you're right, and I am doing something about it. He's been at work the whole time. God responds, and his response isn't that he's on his way. It's that he's never been anywhere else. He's never been on vacation. He's never appointed a board to figure out how to fix things. It's that he has a plan, and in his plan... He's using what Habakkuk thinks is the wrong tool in order to accomplish his purpose for his glory and for our good. 
You see, sending the Chaldeans seems like sending a sledgehammer to replace a microwave. It's like going to get your cracked phone screen and you walk in there and the guy says, yeah, I can fix that. And he goes and like bends down behind the counter and pulls out a chainsaw, right? And you just be going, I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. This is an example for us of the strange instruments that God often uses to accomplish his purpose. You see, this is the truth that we will wonder and be astounded at. This is the reality that we will be told and that we will not believe. It's that God can use instruments to accomplish his purposes that we would never choose, that we cannot understand, and that we really, really wish that he wouldn't, but that he does it for the good of those who love him. It's that God can use a captive like Esther to preserve and to liberate his people. It's that God can work through a group of fearful fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to proclaim a fearless faith. And it's that the challenge of an antagonistic unbeliever in 2019 can be the tool that God uses to push his people into a deeper and more abiding relationship with his word. I cannot tell you how many times that a person's challenge to my faith has pushed me back to God's word and ended up strengthening my faith in the end. God can and does use the instruments of sickness to remind us of our fragility and our mortality and to make us long for the new heaven and the new earth when there will be no more sickness. Losing a job can break us of the idol of pride and self-sufficiency. Losing some temporal treasure here on earth can remind us not to hold too tightly to the things on earth that moth and rust can destroy and that thieves can break in and steal. If your boat, your car, your house, your game system, or your sports team become the markers of your identity, you should probably praise God when the boat sinks, when the car gets wrecked, when the house begins to settle, and when the power surge burns up your PlayStation. If your team losing makes you cry, I'm going to say this to the, to the men. If your team losing makes you cry or genuinely upsets your heart, like really makes you feel angst, you should be thankful that God is breaking you of that idol. And just to show that I'm an equal opportunity offender here, God can and does use small church attendance on a Sunday to remind us that the church is not about us. It's not our project. It's not our victory to win. This is where we come to worship, not where we come to keep score. You see, affliction can be the tool that we don't want, bringing us the restoration that we need. And we rarely, if ever, will pray that God would send affliction into our lives. But he does. He does that because he sees us as we really are. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, of him to whom we must give account. You see, you see what he's saying? He's, God sees you. Like he sees you. He sees you as you really are, that you are exposed, that the church is exposed, the world is exposed. We are all, every single one of us, naked and exposed before the eyes of a holy God. Is what R.C. Sproul used to talk about all the time. In fact, I'm pretty sure every email he ever sent signed off with a a Latin phrase, coram Deo. Coram Deo. It means that we live before the face of God. 
Every single one of us. It's not a choice. So God sees. He hears. And he responds. And he often responds with some strange instruments. And we see this nowhere more clearly in all of creation than we see it at the cross, where we see the death of one innocent man for the life of many wayward sinners. Listen to me. Jesus wasn't confused when he died for you. I want you to know that. He wasn't. He wasn't like, you weren't the fine print at the bottom of the eternal contract, okay? He wasn't out of town. He wasn't caught off guard when he died for you. A lot of times I think we see Jesus as like the ambulance driver who doesn't really know what's happening. He just shows up, right? And he gets stuck with this case. Meanwhile, the other ambulance driver like gets the person who just has a cough. No, he knew what he was driving into. He knew exactly what he was coming into. He wasn't blind when he died for you. He wasn't deaf when he died for you. He knew exactly who you were and he knows exactly who you are. You see, the truth and the beauty of the gospel is not, is not that all your sin is hidden from God. That's not it. It's not that God turns a blind eye and perverts justice here on earth. It's not that he doesn't hear and see the truth of your sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that he sees it all, he hears it all, he understands it all, and yet he loves us anyway. So he sees your impatience bordering on narcissism. He sees your pride. He sees your lust. He sees your anger. He sees your jealousy. He sees all the stuff that make us want to crawl under a rock and duck back into the shadows and hope that nobody can actually find the real us. But there's not one thing hidden from the sight of the one who made everything. And so you're exposed. And listen to me, that is bad news. I want to be as honest as I can with you. I know my own heart to know that if I tell you that and you hear, okay, well, I'm pretty good, then you ain't hearing it right. That God sees all of it. He sees the stuff that you don't ever want your girlfriend or your spouse or your husband or whatever to ever hear, to ever know. He knows all of that. But the liberating beauty of the gospel is not just that you're exposed, but it's that you're loved in that. That he still looks at you with all your mess and says, yeah, that one's mine. That I'll take that one. And the strange instrument that God used to save you is not your harder work. It's not your greater effort. It's not even your recognition of your sin. It's that he, it's that Jesus would pay the price for all of that. It's that Jesus would die so that you might live. So the beauty of that, the liberating beauty of that, the beauty of being exposed and and knowing that we have nothing to hide is that now we can live knowing that even in all of that, God says, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my brother. This is my sister. And so you can stop hiding today. And that's encouraging to my heart. That we can stop hiding today. that, That you don't have to have it all together I mean, your life is a mess. I know that. But even the mess is meant to lead you back to the cross. Back to the one who died for you. Not so that you can live your best life now, but just that you might be called his. And that that would be enough. That that would be enough. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I doubt that. 
that I doubt that you would want to be near me, that I doubt that you would want to hear from me, that I doubt that you would want to see me. And so, Lord, I pray that you would forgive my doubt because you've just made it clear that there is nothing in all of creation that is hidden from you. There's nothing tucked away in a corner that you can't see and that you can and you will work all things together for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, I pray that we'd be about that. And for all this other stuff in our life that gets so attached to us, Lord, I pray that you break us of those things, those idols of our heart, those needs that we have for recognition, the need that we have to be, to be validated among, among the Chaldeans. Lord, I pray that you'd break us of our own desires that we might that we might have your heart, that we might seek first your kingdom, that we might seek first your righteousness and trust you to take care of all the rest. Lord, be with us as we go from here. Help us to look like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.